study. And uh, tonight's going to be, uh, we're dealing with a heavy-duty topic again. Uh, we started out last week looking at what is biblical election, and I'm just going to do a very quick review on it. Thanks, Lane. On uh, the subject of who are the elect or who are the biblically elect and so forth. A uh, huge controversy that has swept over Christendom for 2,000 years. Uh, many different opinions on this. Well, there's really two major opinions, but uh, those two major opinions are very divisive. And we're going to look at uh, things tonight regarding what is biblical election. So we're going to start again. We're just going to do a very quick recap on Israel's election, if you will. And we're going to switch gears, go to that which is much more controversial and has caused a great deal of unfortunate splits within Christian churches regarding the Christian elect. So we're going to look at that. We'll look at it from a biblical perspective. I'm going to uh, take a few minutes to go through what's known as TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, which is the Calvinist doctrine, if you will, regarding uh, the subject of predestination, election, and so forth. Then I will give uh, what I believe is the biblical analysis of that position, as well as what's known as the Arminian position. And you're like, I never heard that word before. Well, stay tuned. By the time we leave here in about 50 minutes, uh, you'll have hopefully a good background on this and absolutely know where you stand. Now, the one thing that will be very helpful, I've got a, actually a full two-page outline, just a scripture today. Did anyone not get one of these? Because it will help. Everybody got one? All right, we're good. You got one, Jack? You're it, brother. <laughs> All right. Larry will get you one, Jack. Thank you. All right. Uh, basically, all it is is scripture. I've got the headings on there. We'll be going through these rapidly once we get going. But uh, again, this is a huge issue and one which uh, I believe is worth taking some time because many of you will run into people from different churches, different backgrounds, and you're going to get this subject coming up, and it's very confusing if you don't know how to defend what you believe. Uh, we've been pushing the concept of biblical literacy. If you're not familiar with the scriptures, if you're not in them, if you're basically biblically illiterate, and I don't mean that in a negative fashion, but it has negative results. If you don't know the scriptures, if you get somebody pushing you on a particular topic and you're like, oh, how in the world do I defend that? Well, we're going to give you a little ammunition tonight, all right, and hopefully get to a place where you can uh, uh, agree on where you stand, and we'll go from there. So let's pray, ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, I pray now that as we open up the Word of God, as we look at many different passages in our Bible study tonight, that, uh, Lord, you give us clarity of thought, that you give us wisdom and understanding, and, Lord, these are, are difficult subjects, and uh, sometimes... Uh, it seems like even the Bible is pointing one way and then it goes a different way on this particular issue. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we study these things that you give us clarity. So Lord, we commit this time to you, pray and bless it. As always, Lord, we ask that you revive the saved and save the lost. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 
All right, so again, uh, our previous message, it's on uh, our website, it's on YouTube, it's on sermonaudio.com. If you go to our website, it's got all the links that you can go to uh, because these are very heavy doctrinal messages, but these are needful in our day and age. So tonight we're going to look at who are the elect in the Bible, and uh, we're going to start just as a very quick review of what we did last week. So when we're looking at, and we, we've been in, uh, going through Romans verse by verse on Sunday nights, and we've now gotten to chapter 9, chapter 9 through 11 are very specific to the Jewish people. Paul's addressing Jewish issues. He's, he's making it clear that that's the particular group that he's talking to in these specific chapters. Well, the next piece of that is he specifically is dealing with God's sovereignty in his relationship with the Jewish people in chapters 9 through 11 again. So what you're going to see, God is very, very specific in Romans 9 about choosing Israel and not choosing others. God's very specific in the scriptures. And now here's what has taken place in Christendom. You read Romans chapter 9, and, and, it, and God's making it, and you've got to understand the context that God's talking about the Jewish people here. So what does the, the church age saints do? Well, we take it out of context, and we try and apply some principles to the church. Now, there's plenty of issues that we're going to bring up that are very specific to the church age saints uh, when it comes to this subject, but you're going to find a totally different flavor when we're talking about these specific words than when God was addressing Israel. And this is just kind of helping us as we get into this subject today. There are major differences between how God is dealing with Israel and how God deals with individuals before they come to Christ. All right, just a reminder about God's having chosen the Jewish people as his precious ones. Deuteronomy chapter 7, for you are a holy people. This is Israel. This isn't the church age saints. He's talking about the Jewish people. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has, what's the next word? And it's chosen. God's making it very clear. I chose you. Out of all the nations of the world, I chose you. I mean, basically, you could, the, the word chosen, by the way, is a nice synonym for election. God chose the Jewish people. I chose you to be a people for basically himself, for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, is that fairly clear? I, I think it's really clear. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, no, he makes it very clear. Verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. If you were actually the least of all people. So God's making it clear. Again, he's like, you think I might have chosen you because you're mighty, you're powerful, you're smart, you're this. No, I chose you because I chose to chose you. Or I chose to choose you. There you go. Get my grammar, grammar right. Uh, verse 8. But because the Lord, what does he do? He loves you. He loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. Again, go right back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. God made it very clear in the Abrahamic covenant that he was going to take care of the Jewish people. And we all remember, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. God promised them a land that he would give to them. And these were promises that God gave to the Hebrew children of Israel 
or the Jewish people, all synonymous terms. Because the Lord loves you, and because you would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we're not going to go through that whole explanation, but the bottom line is Deuteronomy 7 specifically says God chose the Jewish people, and there's, there's just no denying that. What else does uh, Romans 9, well, the Jewish people were also punished for their lack of obedience to the Lord. So God had very specific things, and again, we're still in our review section. So in the Jewish people, God made it very clear to them that, uh, listen, I'm not only going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, but I'm going to tell you what, you misbehave, you don't follow my commands, I'm going to bring judgment on you. And, he, and God absolutely did. Unfortunately, and again, we love the Jewish people. This is not to cast dispersion upon them. But they were, uh, unfortunately, they're quite often disobedient to God, and they paid severely for it. They were God's children. We brought out last week that uh, that verse, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens even as a father, a son in whom he delights. Okay, so that's Bible. Uh, so what happened? Based on their disobedience, uh, the ten northern tribes were taken captive in the Assyrian deportation 722. The two southern tribes are uh, Judah. Uh, actually, there are three deportations to Babylon, the final one being in 586 when God allowed the temple to be taken down, all the Jewish people brought to Babylon. Why? Because they were disobedient. So God had, yeah, you're my chosen people. And it's just like a father loves his son, and he's going to hold him accountable and pull him back in. God says, I'm going to hold you accountable. You disobey me, I'm going to punish you. So and uh, then a, a Roman deportation back in A.D. 70. So the Jewish people come back to Israel, and they still don't obey God. And God said, all right, you're going to play that game. You're not going to obey me. There's another deportation in A.D. 70, where the, and it's more than a deportation. This was a scattering of the Jewish people all over the known world. Uh, they emptied it out Jerusalem for the most part, except for some sick, lame, and injured Jews. And uh, not until literally, until about 1948, almost 2,000 years later, uh, did Israel become a state or a country again. And now they have about 7.5 million Jewish people living there. So after, uh, uh, again, about nearly 2,000 years, the Lord reestablished Israel in her own land, and she was recognized by the world community as an independent and sovereign state. So what's the point? And uh, we got very practical on this. It's the same in the church age. If God people, God's people uh, walk with the Lord, they walk in the Spirit, and they do right, life is good. But God also says, for whom the Lord loves, he, Jason, is the even as a father, son, and whom he delights in, in, Hebrew, in Hebrews. So uh, up on the chart, and we will close with this uh, review. But again, the Jewish people are still suffering because of their lack of obedience to God. But God, and here's the point. The point is God said, I chose you to be a holy nation, a holy people. And God has given unconditional eternal covenants to the Jewish people. That's not going to ever change. The Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, all given to the Jews and Israel in the Old Testament, and God will make good on those covenants. All right, so when we look at the Jewish people, we say, okay, very specific, very specific choosing, very specific being called out as a 
group of people. Now, the next piece I do not have up on the screen, but I'm going to go through this basically on this particular subject of what is election? What is biblical election and who are the elect of Scripture? All right, now I'm, going to, I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, but I'm going to give you the key issues here based on what's known as Calvinism. How many have heard of Calvinism? All right, most if not all. Calvinism, and I'm just going to read a couple introductory remarks. So here's the article, 5-point tulip, T-U-L-I-P, just like the flower. 5-point tulip Calvinism explained. The tulip acronym explains the beliefs of Calvinism. This was by Jack Zavada back in 2019. All right, so here's his opening three paragraphs. Calvinism is a rare theology. Well, it's not very rare anymore. It can be explained simply using a five-letter acronym, TULIP. This set of religious principles is the work of John Calvin, 1509 to 1564, a French church reformer who had a permanent influence on several branches of Protestantism. All right, now, again, if you're not familiar with church history and, and this word Protestant, I'm not even sure how many people know what that word means anymore, and especially uh, our school-age kids. When we're talking about the, the, the word Protestant, what does that mean? It means literally in protest. In protest against what? Now, again, I'm not meaning to be unkind, and I'm not I'm trying to start a fight here, but uh, uh, it was a fight against the Catholic Church. Quote, I mean, it just was. Protestants were protesting the Catholic Church and the Catholic doctrine. All right? And again, I'm not trying to be unkind to those that uh, uh, have a Catholic background or maybe watching on the Internet tonight, but that's what Protestantism was. It was trying to fight, if you will, the doctrines of the Catholic Church, the Catholic hierarchy. The tulip memory tool was solidified at the Synod of Dort, so this isn't something that just is recent. This has been around since 1618 when this uh, five-letter acronym came about at a gathering of reformed theologians. All right. Now, if I asked uh, you to write a, a, a synopsis of what is reformed theology, what is a reformed theologian? Trying to make it as simple as possible, a Reformed theologian basically holds to the tenets of Calvin, which are these five points we're going to very quickly go through. The other thing that the Reformed theologians do, which is totally opposite of what we do here at Union Grove Baptist Church, the Reformers follow a more allegorical approach to interpreting prophecy. So in other words, when we're talking about the next major event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. After that, the seven-year tribulation. After that, Jesus Christ comes back uh, to this earth and sets up his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. After that, there'll be a, a, a war that will take place, and then finally we get into, or all the way to Revelation 20, now we get to the great white throne judgment and into eternity. A Reformed theologian is not going to buy what I just said because they don't take the Scriptures literally. They dismiss, the, many of them dismiss the concept of a rapture, a tribulation, a millennium. Many of them will say we're either in the millennium or there is no millennium. <clears throat> so we, we've got this massive difference. So 
when you hear the concept reformed theology or a reformed church, your antennas should go up. Boom. Something probably amiss here. And they're going to an allegorical or a Calvinistic type interpretation of Scripture. So let me, let's just pause for a moment and think about this. There's two main schools that you constantly hear about from, if you're reading theology books or occasionally in a message, you'll hear these names, um, not necessarily from me, but others as well. So do you often hear about Calvin? Yes, you absolutely do. The other guy who's the major player in the theology ring, who actually was a former student of Calvin during the day, but he wasn't buying everything Calvin was selling. And the guy's name was Arminius. Um, I forget his fancy name in English. It's basically Joseph Arminius in common English terms. Arminius had basically, you've got the five points of Calvinism, and Arminian, pretty much the opposite. Uh, it just point blank. So you're like, here's, and, and I just want to say this before we move on. Again, I'm not preaching today. It's more of a study. And when we're looking at this, you're like, well, Pastor, where do you fit on the Calvinist Arminian scale? I don't want to fit on their scales. I just don't. I don't want to be a part of being labeled as a Calvinist or an Arminian. Uh, uh, here's what I want to be labeled as. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. That's it. So you're like, well, how many points of Calvinism do you buy into? Well, how many are biblical? And we'll, talk, we'll start there. How many points of Arminius uh, are, are biblical? Well, folks, I'm, I'm not going to debate Calvinism or Arminianism. And I could, and I have, but uh, that's not our point. The point is we want to be, as we've been pushing over the last several weeks, we want to be biblicist, biblically literate. I, don't put me on your Calvinist agenda or your Arminian agenda or any other agenda unless it has a biblical agenda. All right, here we go. Just so you're aware of it, because many of you are, some may not. The five key tenets of, if you will, Calvinist theology. And you're like, well, why are we even discussing this? What's tonight's subject? The elect. Calvinism has had a massive input and a, and a great amount of followers when it comes to what are the biblically elect based on Calvin's doctrine, which I'm going to tell you up front, I disagree with quite a few pieces of this. You can figure it out as we teach it. All right, number one, TULIP. T stands for total depravity. Total depravity. Here's what total depravity means to a Calvinist. Now, if you go to, uh, and let's do it. Take your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 3, which is actually quoting Old Testament. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. So, when you're looking at this and you're like, what does total depravity mean? Well, basically it means that we're all sinners. That I certainly agree with. But their concept is that we are totally depraved, so totally separated from God, so totally in an antithesis to God that you absolutely on your own can never make a decision to come to God. You're totally depraved. All right? In other words, there's no good in you. There's not going to be any good in you. You have no free will. You have no volition. And quite frankly, you're such a mess, you'll never come to God. All right? That's total depravity. Here's how, how they started out. As it is written, there is none righteous, verse 10, Romans 3. No, not one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Well, that sounds pretty strong. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of ash was under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. By the way, every one of those passages was quoted from Psalms. So, what are we looking at here in your minds? And by the way, you know what's interesting? And, and this is one piece I really wanted to bring out. Do you know who is upset about Calvinism? Do you know who's upset about Arminian, Arminianism? It's not the unsaved people. It's saved people who are arguing over, well, this is what this means. And God says this person's going to get saved. That person's not going to get saved. And others will say, I, ho- I totally buy into that. And somebody over here says, I'm not buying that one inch. By the way, I'm not buying that one inch. Uh, and I'll show you why. But it's Christians who have come up with these doctrinal conclusions based on their school of thought. All right? So we want to be careful. All right? But basically, we're going to start. Now, are we sinners? Have all co- sinned and come short of the glory of God? Yep. Absolutely. I, I mean, that part's true. But here's the question, and here's where the Calvinist meets the road. Are individuals, think about back before you got saved, were you so depraved, so absolutely anti-God that you literally didn't have any free will, and God basically, because you were totally depraved, had to force you to become a Christian? That's their premise, okay? So T stands for total depravity. What does U stand for? Now, here's, here's the topic of the evening. Unconditional election. Unconditional election. This Calvinist view says God chooses who will be saved. In other words, if God didn't choose you to be saved, not, never going to happen. If God chooses you to be saved, you don't have an option. Now, you want to know why this is a absolutely problematic piece of doctrine. All you got to do, let's get on a plane and go to England where Calvinism swept the country. Let's get on a plane, go over to England, and let's go to the great churches that used to exist in England. You know why those churches are about as dead as dead can be today? Because of Calvinism. God will take care of it. You don't have to do a blessed thing because God's blessed assurance will make sure who's going to get saved gets saved. Wasn't well, it amazing that uh, churches that hold to those doctrines have 10 to 20 people in the pews? Why? Because there's no evangelism. Did God say that pastors are to do the work of an evangelist? Is that in the Bible? Let's be biblically literate. It's in there, right? Uh, uh, did God, when he said he, when he was forming the, the church, and he says he called some to be uh, uh, pastors and teachers and apostles and evangelists, well, what do you need an evangelist for if God does everything by himself? Why did God say, how, uh, how are they going to hear the gospel unless I send out preachers into the field? So it's, uh, uh, and, and again, the Calvinists will say, well, wait a minute. 
God's taking care of everything. Unconditional election. God picks them based not on their personal character or merit, but out of his kindness and sovereign will. I listened to a very well-known pastor. I'm not going to name him. I don't want to give him the platform, but he's very well-known. You all know who, if, if I said his name, you know who it is. Listen, and I specifically, I listened to one of his messages on uh, uh, election and predestination just to make sure I had their opinion right. And I mean, sure enough, he says, you know, when I, when I go into, and I'm, I'm, uh, I went into a hospital room, and he said uh, uh, an individual asked me to come, which was shocking that a guy of this stature actually went to the hospital room, but he did. And he said uh, uh, the individual there was ready to die. He was dying. And, and he said, uh, 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 Pastor, you know, I'm, I'm scared. I'm not sure I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And he says, am I one of the elect? What? Am I one of the elect? He, this guy's going to die. He's two weeks away from death, by the way. And, and the pastor said this. He didn't give him what we would call the gospel, of which I know the pastor knows it. You know what he said? He says, every time I get into a situation like this, he said, I just pray that God would have mercy on them because he's either one of the elect or he's not. And I'm like, I wanted to jump through the radio and gently caress his neck. <laughs> Pastor, well known. Well known. I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh, amen to that. False prophet is what the word was. Uh, uh, folks, God, God, did God call us to give the gospel out? Did God say, be my ambassadors? I mean, absolutely he did. So this unconditional like, why work if God's going to do everything? I was talking to another individual this week who's very involved in, in Wisconsin, Wisconsin politics, as well as Wisconsin churches. And uh, we sat down, had lunch together, and he said, I said, you know, and, and we started to talk about how many churches are in Wisconsin, how many, how many churches are with or without pastors. And uh, he said, well, and he's very astute about these things. He said, well, basically, virtually the majority of all independent Baptist churches have pastors right now. And I said, okay, well, that, I guess that's a good thing. And uh, he said, well, he said, you know what? He said, now, he said, I've been following you. I've been following Union Grove Baptist Church. And uh, he said, I believe you're one of the top three churches as far as attendance goes in the state for independent Baptist churches. And I was like, okay, well, that's, I guess that's good news. We're, you know, we're, our folks work hard. They bring folks. Folks are, uh, get saved. We're, we got outreaches and ministries. And I said, well, that's good. But I said, we're not where we want to be yet. And then he, he made this other thing. And he, he, he actually had made an app about all the churches in, our, in Wisconsin. And he said, you know what the average attendance is at most independent Baptist churches? I said, no, what is it? 20 to 30. 20 to 30 across the state. And I'm like, Wow. You know, that, that's kind of eye-opening. And, and I said, well, why do you think that is? You know, might as well ask. Well, I'm not even, I, I don't even know if I want to tell you what he said. But it basically comes down to, yeah, I study 40 hours a week in my office, never go out on the street, never make a call, never invite somebody out to dinner. It's just, it's just a job. Folks, just, I, I, let me tell you straight up. This is not a job for me. It's not a job. This is a calling. 
if, 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 I want a, if I want a job, I'll go back to the sheriff's office. I mean, that's how I worked for 32 years to pay for ministry. And I, by the way, I believe that's what exactly what Paul did. You know, he's a tent maker. I won't be chargeable. Well, I mean, you folks pay me a nice little salary. That's fine. But it, 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 what's the issue? The issue is you got pastors, you got people that are following this nonsense, and it's like, well, you know, uh, God will take it. Well, no, God will not take care of it. And you know why? Because God said, I've called you to do my work. And, and, and folks, I'm not, I, know, I know I raised my voice a little there. It's not at you. It, it's basically what, what, what's frustrating. You know, it ought to frustrate all of us. When God's people say, no, uh, well, just unconditional election. God will pick out who's going to get saved and who's not. Why spend our time? Why waste our time printing tracts and handing out books about the God? That's what happens with Reformed theology. L stands for, now here's a real kicker one, and this is one that many even a strong Calvinist will rebel against. But this was what was adopted by Calvin back in the 1600s. So we've got... Let's go through it again. T stands for total depravity. U for unconditional election. L stands for limited atonement. You say, what does that mean? It means that when Jesus went to the cross, according to the Calvinists, he only died for those that were elect. That's it. All right? In other words, if you're not one of God's elect, Jesus did not die for you. Limited atonement is the view that Jesus Christ died only for the sins of the elect. According to John Calvin, support for this belief comes from verses that say Jesus died for many, such as Matthew 20, 28 and Hebrews 9, 28. Well, see, that's the problem when you take proof text verses and try and make a theology out of them. Once we get rolling here and we start getting into the, into the verses, we're going to be rolling through about 50 that oppose this statement. God said specific things at specific times for a reason, but there's no such thing as limited atonement. How about just one verse to kill that one? And everybody in their country knows it. John 3, 16. For God so loved the elect. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry. Did I say that? For God so loved the, the world, the cosmos, all people, that he gave his only begotten son, that if the elect, is that what the next word is? No, that whosoever, whosoever will, whosoever will. Yeah, you know the song. Uh, I don't. Anyway, uh, stand L for limited atonement. I, and here's the next killer, irresistible grace. Irresistible. In other words, if God says you're one of my elect, you cannot resist him. Why would you anyway? But uh, 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 here's the issue. Irresistible grace is a belief that God brings his elect to salvation through an internal call, which they are powerless to resist. In other words, you're totally to pray, but when God says you're mine, you're mine. That's irresistible grace. Number, the last one, P, this one I do embrace, stands for the perseverance of the saints. Basically, that means once saved, always saved. Yeah, that, that I absolutely buy into. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we talked about it this morning. Do not quench the Spirit of God by whom you are, by whom you are. Y'all know that verse, folks. Sealed! God's got you. So, yes, I do strongly believe in the perseverance of the saints. All right, so that's, that's the issue. And that's why when we're going into these verses now, dealing with who are the elect in the Bible, it's time to sit up and say, okay, you just heard 60% of all Christian churches believe what I just told you. Strong Calvinist. Don't believe in biblical prophecy the way you and I do. It's a problem. 
Okay? So let's move on. Uh, election of Israel, we went through that, uh, and I'm not going to go through that again because I'll never get done with the rest of it, but go to last week's lesson and it'll be there. Let's go to Christian election. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, wait a minute. Peter, to the people of pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, who is he talking about here? Well, this specifically, he's talking about those that were dispersed. Well, who were dispersed? The Jewish people, uh, Jewish converts to faith in Christ. Now, I looked at, and I, I threw this in here for fun, out of a Reformed commentary and again, it's this most famous preacher, and again, I'm not going to name him, but he said, well, you know, this could also include Jewish or Gentile converts, and it's like, all right, I'm throwing it in there just for fun, but the context happens to be Jewish again. Dispersion. Well, who is dispersed? The Jewish people when they went against the Romans. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What happened in AD 70? Who was dispersed? The Jewish people from Israel when the Romans came in and made them leave. That's who was dispersed. Now, here's that word elect. Elect. Ooh, the stomach begins to churn. Elect. According to the what? Foreknowledge. Oh, foreknowledge. What does foreknowledge mean? You go to the Reformed commentaries, they take the word foreknowledge and say it is foreordained. Foreordained, that God purposed that, and again, it goes right into that Reformed concept. The word there is foreknowledge. God knows everything before you're born about who you are, what you're going to do, is God omniscient? Yes. I mean, he knows everything. And God says, listen, based on his four... Now, why would he put that in there if it wasn't for a purpose? Elect according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. All right, so we're starting out with this concept, the elect. Are you sitting here, if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, would you fall under this term, the elect? You would. I absolutely you would. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So at a minimum, what we can get from this verse is, if someone has placed their faith and trust in Christ, yes, they are considered the elect. But do you see the same verbiage used here that he used with Israel? Do you see it? Anybody? I lost you? I lost you. All right. Let's go back to Romans 9 through 11. Did God say, or Deuteronomy, did he say, you are a chosen people? Did he say that? Does he say that here about the folks coming to Christ? He doesn't. It's not there. All right. So the, the issue is, and I'm gonna, I am going to quote one guy because I, 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 I like him. We both agree, so therefore I'll quote him. Many of you know Dr. Andy Woods, uh, Sugar Land Bible Church down in Texas, uh, Dallas grad, uh, doctorate, also has a law degree, which is immaterial. He's also the president of Schaefer Theological Seminary. And uh, you know how he explains the difference between 
election and free will? He said, Dr. Woods, he's quoting himself, do you believe in an election or free will? And here's his answer, yes. Yes. You say, Pastor Rich, do you believe in election or free will? Yes. You see, when, as we go through this, God does do a work through the power of the Holy Spirit to draw us to him. Does God know who's going to get saved or basically come to Christ based on his foreknowledge? Of course he does. He knows. He knows everything. Has God, re, has God made it so, though so that there's no free will, no volition, that you have no ability to come to Christ? Well, we're going to see as we get through this. But this starts the conversation. Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, as the elect of God, talking to Christians, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. What I'm pointing out here, I'm not trying to go through this exegetically on each passage. What I'm pointing out is what's the word there? The word elect. The word chosen. Based on what? God's, God's what? Foreknowledge. Keep that word in the back of your mind. First uh, Thessalonians 1, 2. We give thanks to God always for you all. Y'all, that's Southern. Making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ inside of God and Father. Knowing blood, brethren, your what? Your election to God. Hmm. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Well, wait a minute. What, why are you going to make your election sure if it's a done deal? What's he saying? Based on God knowing who's going to come to Christ, based on those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are considered God's elect. And he's like, well, if you're one of God's elect based on his foreknowledge, not like in Deuteronomy where he says, I've chosen you. Bam. You don't have an option, Jewish people. You belong to me. All right? Uh, that's never said of the church-age saints. For so an entrance will be supplied you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make your call and election sure. In other words, act out your faith. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Here we go. This is a good one. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Now, now let's just park there for a minute because that's a hugely misused verse. Folks, if somebody loses a loved one, let's just talk about what happened this last week with a 41-year-old police officer that keels over a heart attack. Do you think I'm going to go talk to his wife, now widowed, and say, well, you know, hon, all things work together for good. This is good. Do you think I would say that? If you do, you should vote me out. <laughs> of course not. It's not good. It's not good. The results of how God will use that will be good, but that was not a good thing. When you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you that you've got cancer or you've got a serious illness and, and all of a sudden you, you uh, come and say, Pastor, 
uh, I just went to the doctor, as many of you have done, and here's the results. I'm not going to say, well, that's good. Praise the Lord. I'm glad you got cancer. God's going to use that. No, of course not. How insensitive and how unkind. What God is saying that even though uh, this dear lady lost her husband, even though people get sick, somehow in the scheme and sovereignty of God, he will use those events to bring about good towards him. We and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he what? He foreknew. Now here comes that next nasty word. He also, say it with me, predestined. What did he predestinate you to do? Did he predestine you to become a Christian? Is that what this verse says? He says, those whom he foreknew, of course the elect, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's predestination. Predestination means, listen folks, just like we talked about this morning, there's coming a day when you're going to breathe your last breath or the rapture comes, you're going to pop up to heaven, and God says you are predestined to be conformed to my image. Can you live with that predestination? I, I can. Yeah, of course. God's going to change me. Thank you. He's going to give me a glorified body, one that's going to last forever, one that is sinless. Yeah, I'll be happy to be predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm never going to accomplish that on my own down here. Now, if God did everything via election and predestination, why aren't we all perfect? Why do we still have any sin nature left? So there, there's that rub, that antithesis, that uh, uh, a rubbing problem that you have when you try to push the Reformed theology. All right, so he says, listen, whom he foreknow, which are the elect, will agree to that based on God's foreknowledge. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Is that going to happen down here? I mean, absolutely not. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined. Then he also check the verb tense. Past, present, or future. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Past. It's already accomplished. He called them. It's done. It's a done deal. Whom he called, these he what? He also justified. In other words, justification is when you look at it, uh, our sin doesn't exist because we're justified. By the way, interesting, he doesn't use the word sanctified here. We are called, we are justified, and we are in God's future look, but already deemed glorified. Why didn't he use sanctification in here? We all talk about, well, of course, uh, uh, we're sanctified, we're justified, we're glorified. Why didn't he include sanctification in there? Because that's a continual, ongoing process that every single one of us as God's believers are still taking part in. So he didn't include it in here because that is today. That is something that we work on today. Sanctification is a continual, ongoing process of becoming more like Christ. These other things are done. I'm justified. I'm glorified, just same as you are. And God says, it is finished. It's done. He's already done it. Uh, how about Ephesians 1.3? Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Let me, God bless you. And God bless you. And may God bless you. In the, no, we messed that up too. Catch this verse. God 
has, past, present, or future. What's has? Past tense. God has blessed us. It's already done. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's done. That's what he's pointing out. It's done for you, and that's a good thing. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now you're all saying right now, well, that sounds like election. That sounds like God has chosen us. And you know what? I agree. But wait, there's more. Having predestined us to what? The adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. We are predestined to be adopted as God's sons. I can live with that as well. And I believe it and I embrace it. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. What's all this talking about? He's talking about God has set a course for us. It's not going to be fully realized until we get where? Until we get to be with him, absent from the body, present with the Lord, all this kicks in. It's a done deal. It's coming. Folks, if... all we got to do is, let me see. Did I have a bad thought this week? Did I say something I should have said this week? Did I, did I do anything that would have been disreputable as a Christian? Did I do anything that if God were standing right next to me, I would have gone, oh, boy, I can't believe I did that. Folks, we're not, we're not, we're not there yet. But when it's coming, we'll be conformed by God's predestined purpose to be just like him. Uh, let's go back to Genesis 1. You were made in what of God? The image. The image of God. Yeah, you are going to be sinless one day. Not down here, but when God calls you home. And all these things are planned for you. Why? Because of God's gracious and sovereign plan for us. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, you might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Folks, that day is coming when we'll all be gathered together to be with him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Have you gotten your inheritance yet? Why? Because you didn't die. Or you haven't been raptured. You don't get your inheritance while daddy's still living. Now you say, well, I got my inheritance. My dad was still around. Forget it. We're not, we're not going to what you did. We're doing what the <laughs> Word of God's talking about here. You don't get the inheritance until uh, you pass through this life. Why? Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So it's all about God's glory. It's all about what's coming. It's all about getting out of this life someday and being in his presence where we truly will be in the image of God. That's the predestination. Now, here we go a little bit more. Predestination of God's people and human responsibility. Now, we're going to start getting into the other aspect. I just gave you a bunch of stuff that the Calvinists would say, yep, all free or all uh, God forcing the issue here. You have no say in it, really. Verse 13. In him, you also what? You trusted. Now, how could you do that? Well, because you're totally depraved and there's no possible way you did it unless God forced you to do it. Does that say that here? No, he said you trusted in him. 
Well, how did you do that? Well, you can't trust in something unless you have volition, unless you have free will. Uh, 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 so what does he say? You heard the word of truth. Why do I need to hear the word of truth if I'm already elected and I'm already predestined and it's all said and done? You heard the word of truth. You trusted in the truth. The gospel of your salvation and whom also having believed. Now, is that an act of faith, belief? Uh, 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 a couple of folks, they were getting into these uh, kind of uh, uh, questions with me a couple of months ago or a month ago, and, and they're like, is belief a work? And I'm like, no, belief is synonymous with faith. It's synonymous with trust, all three synonyms. It's not a work. It's a, an act of faith. It's believing. You've got to believe, folks. You've got to do that. You've got to uh, believe, trust, faith, all three synonymous things. You've got to trust in Christ. That is a mandate. So uh, he says, what do you have to do? Having believed, after you believed, you placed your faith and trust in Christ, you were then what? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Done deal. Who is the what? The guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession of the praise of his glory. All right, now let's go to the opposite end. If you wanted to, to uh, uh, and this is what the Calvinists will do, they'll take everything we just went through and say, you cannot do that unless God forces you to do it. That's, a, I mean, to a T, that's how they're going to answer you. Well, let's see, let's look at the other side as we close this out. Let's look at the human responsibility or free will. And we're going to give a bunch from John and then a couple of, from the epistles. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Now, did that take a volition? Did that take a free will? Did that take someone to say yes to Christ? Well, I would, I would suggest it does. Again, the Calvinists will say, well, unless God forced you to do it, you wouldn't do it. I don't see that written in the, in the gospel. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Paul said, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. Actually, the word is save. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Why, Paul? What a waste of time. God's going to do all the work. Why'd you go through all that silly missionary stuff? Why, why'd you get beat up? Why'd you go, uh, uh, I mean, why'd, why'd you suffer like that? Don't you know, haven't you never read your Bible that you wrote half of? That God's done all the work for you? I, I mean, the, the, on its face, and it's like, well, the Reformed people would say, well, you just don't get it. Okay, I don't get it, and I don't want to get it. I really don't. Uh, uh, what's he saying here? Uh, uh, you received him. And, and Paul said, listen, I'll do whatever it takes. He said, I, I wish I could, in, in, uh, uh, when we were back in Romans 9, in the beginning, verse 1 through 5, and he said, man, I could wish that I would, could go to uh, uh, hell, literally, to pay uh, 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 and let my brethren, the Jewish people, go to heaven, but I know I can't do that. Why did Paul put his life on the line? Why did he sacrifice? Why did he give? Well, because he was trying to win folks to Christ. What a waste of time if that wasn't true. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes a volitional act in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world, the cosmos, through him might be saved. John 3, 36, He who, what? Believes. believes. 
In the Son has everlasting life. He and he who and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He who believes, folks, uh, uh, how do you believe? By faith, you have to hear the gospel. Someone has to present the gospel, and God says, "I'm sending pastors and preachers and missionaries and." people that know Christ and every single one of you are ambassadors for Christ if God did all the work why does he need us and that's exactly what the reformed theologian says and that's exactly why they sit on their blessed assurance and do nothing and their churches are running 20 and 30 people I'm not mean to be nasty or unkind but talk about a waste of time shut your doors go, go get a decent job and stop bilking God's people out of their money to sit on your blessed assurance. You say, do you really feel that way, Pastor? Are you really? Yeah, I really do feel that way. Shut your doors. Stop Stop uh, uh, pretending. You know, even those 20 or 30 people that are sitting in those Reformed pews hearing this nonsense, that's 20 or 30 people that potentially are saved good folks that are being taught don't evangelize. It's a waste of time. God will take care of it. Well, that's 20 or 30 soldiers that just got taken out of the army. Folks, we need every single person. God needs every single person. We're all his ambassadors. We've got to do the work. John 5, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Wait a minute. Part one, I've got to hear the word. The word of God does the work. Hebrews 4, 12. And what happens? You hear the word and those that respond to it and believe in him who sent me as everlasting life. John 2.30, And truly Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe. Now, why do I need to read Scripture? Why do I need to do all this if God's already said, Hey, Rich, you're one of my elect. And nobody needs to talk to you. It's just going to come naturally. It didn't come naturally for me. I don't know about you. You just wake up and say, oh, yeah, I'm saved today. Yeah, I, I, I never heard the gospel, never got a track, never went to church, never heard. Folks, you're not going to get saved. It's just not going to happen. That's why God's called us to do his uh, work because there is free will involved. Acts 10, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who has ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Volitional act, believing on Jesus Christ. Let's get, out, get into the Pauline epistles. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What saved? How did they come to Christ? They heard the gospel. Does God use human elements to reach folks for Christ? Does God use you? Does God use you? Yes. I, yeah, he does. He does. Why? To save those who believe. Let's go to Galatians. We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, a volitional free will act that God... I mean, this isn't a theological statement, but it's like, wait a second. If 
4% of humanity has put, has put their faith and trust in Christ. God, did God elect 96% of the world to go to hell? I really have a problem with that concept. Like, well, are you calling God? I mean, you go back to the Calvinist position. They're like, well, why don't you just be thankful you're one of the elect? You're one of the four percenters. I'm like, that's where the arguments start. That's where the red faces come from when you hear stuff like that. And the Calvinist gets in your face, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. God's done all the work. You're trying to make man part of the equation. Oh, yeah, I am. Because God makes man part of the equation. God has called people to preach. God has called people to witness. God has called us to be his ambassadors. Why would he do that if he's already done all the work? Makes no sense. All right? Uh, uh, but again, in 1600s, Calvin, Luther, Protestants, they knew the one thing they got right. They understood that the, the, what was taking place in the Catholic Church, the hierarchy church of the, of the days back in the 15s and 1600s and before that, how did you come to Christ? You read their literature, which I've done. Pay money. Pay indulgences. Pay for purgatory to get out. Pay for the candles that you light at the altars. Everything is about money. Why do you think the Vatican is one of the richest places on earth? And again, I'm not trying to be disparaging to our Catholic friends. I'm not. But folks, Luther and Calvin said enough. We're saved by faith. That we can agree on, brother. We can. Spurgeon. How many of you heard of Charles Spurgeon back in the day? Charles Spurgeon was a strict Calvinist. Metropolitan Tabernacle had several thousand attendees. You say, Wait a minute, he was a strict Calvinist and he was running 2,000 plus? Yeah. You know why? Because, and I read his, it's a book called Lectures to My Students. He, he makes kind of a funny statement. I've given you this before. He said, listen, God has mandated that I'm to preach the gospel to every person. Well, he got that part right. Praise the Lord. And he said, you know, he said, if I knew there was a yellow stripe on the back of every single person that God had elected to salvation. I would run down the street, lift up the back of everyone's shirt, and find the elect people. But God hasn't done that. So I, my calling to preach the gospel to every person. Well, Spurgeon didn't realize it, but he, was, he wasn't really a five-point Calvinist. Praise the Lord he would, <laughs> because he got the job done. Thousands of people uh, heard the gospel under his ministry, but he did subscribe to a great deal of Calvinism. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you know it. For by grace are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith. How many times have we, we seen the word faith? How many times have we seen the word believe? you got to do something. And if you've got to do something, God has to have allowed you to do it. Now, will anyone come to Christ? Think, think now, not, not a trick question. Will anybody come to Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of their heart? No, he won't. Is God involved in the salvation of every person that comes to Christ? Absolutely he is. When you're presenting the gospel to someone, whether it's in the pulpit, whether it's in your home, whether it's at the school, whether it's at the grocery store, and you're opening up the Word of God and you're trying to share the, the four 
points or however you do the gospel, and you're presenting it to somebody, if the Holy Spirit isn't working on that person's heart, you're going nowhere. You just aren't. But God said, listen, I need you to go. I need you to talk. I need you to share. And then God's going to do what he does. Knocking on the, the heart's door. By the way, how many, what's a, uh, that's a bad question. Here's a question. Does everybody you talk to accept Christ as their personal Savior? No. In fact, it's the minority that actually do, right? I mean, that the Holy Spirit works on hearts. The Holy Spirit does the Holy Spirit's part, but God uses you. Does God call us? Absolutely. Why is the gospel there? It's because man and woman have to make a conscience choice. Does God call you? Well, you betcha he does. Does God also allow free will to become part of the equation? Absolutely he does. So when you hear these words, election and the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, are the two compatible? And may I suggest they absolutely are. God does his work. We have to do our part. And God, in his sovereign, wonderful plan, brings both of those concepts together, and he marries them so that people indeed have that volitional choice to either receive or reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Folks, you know how Union Grove Baptist Church will keep growing? Do you know how any church will keep growing? You know how any church that's been caught up in hyper-Calvinism where they believe that God is doing everything and doesn't use people? Shut the doors of the church with the 10, 20, 30 people that just sit there and eat up the Calvinist doctrine, the Reformed theology, and you will ruin Christendom in a matter of time. Union Grove Baptist Church, according to that little app, and I'll close with this, is one of the top three independent Baptist churches as far as attendance goes in Wisconsin. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what this person told me. The only way that the 200 churches in Wisconsin or the thousands of churches in America, the tens of thousands across the world, the only way we grow is when we stop playing theology and start doing the work of God that he's called us to do. And go out there and tell folks the greatest news ever given to mankind, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Every single person needs to hear, and that's the job that we've been called to do. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for these dear folks that are here, those listening on the Internet. Lord, as sure as I'm standing here, I'm going to get letters or emails or text messages from folks watching on the Internet trying to explain to me why what I said is all wrong this evening. And that's fine. Father, I believe with all my heart, and I believe the folks, if not every person in this room tonight, is saying, you know, I remember when I trusted Christ, somebody sat down with me or a preacher was preaching or somebody shared and I heard the message of the gospel that I was a sinner, that I didn't deserve to go to heaven, that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came down from heaven, died on a cross for my sins, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead. I remember as my heart was under conviction and I, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that I needed to place my faith in Jesus Christ. I believed on him. Thank you, Lord, for knocking on my heart's door. And thank you, Lord, for those that you sent to spread your word. So, Father, I pray that as we walk out of here in a moment, that we wouldn't fall into this anti-evangelism, anti-work mentality that is crippling our churches across the country. But, Lord, that you'd use us in any way that you can this week in the days to come to present the blessed message of the gospel to as many people as possible. If you're here tonight, you're a Christian. Would you ask the Lord to keep using you? Ask him to help you have the tenacity of an Apostle Paul to preach the gospel to everyone you possibly can. If you're watching tonight or here in the auditorium, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, I encourage you to do that right now. We've given you the gospel at the end several times. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you don't deserve heaven. Yes, if you got what you deserved, you'd spend eternity in an awful place called the Lake of Fire, Revelation 21.8. But the good news is, as Timothy said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. May I ask you, what will you do with Jesus today? Father, thank you for your love for us. Help us to keep studying to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen, workwomen, that need not to be ashamed, rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth and all God's people.